And we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, specifically verse 8, uh, but I'm going to pick up reading actually at the very beginning of the book. So we're going to start reading in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, and we're going to read a good chunk of scripture here because I want, to, I want you to kind of get an idea of what's going on. So 1 Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 1 verse 2, and when you've arrived there, will you stand as we read God's word together? 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading there in verse 2. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance, you know how we lived among you for your benefit. And you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. And as a result... You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Chapter 2, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never use flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness, and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses. And so is God of how devotely, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to live worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Heavenly Father, as we continue on thinking through this idea of disciple-making disciples, I thank you for this picture of the of a life that is marked by disciple making. And I pray that as we work through this passage of Scripture, God, that you would instill in us even more of a desire to see disciples made. That we would indeed see our purpose as existing to make disciples, to show off Christ where life exists. So give us grace to hear 
grace to understand. Your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I know that was a a lengthy portion of Scripture, and and I read all of that knowing that I really just want to focus on on one specific verse uh, in this text, and that's chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul says, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. As you know, we are in the midst of this series of disciple-making disciples, and this morning as we continue on, I want to focus our our attention on this idea of a disciple-making life, a disciple-making life. And what I mean by that is this idea uh, that disciple-making is a lifestyle. It's not merely an action. That when we think of of disciples making disciples, that I don't want us to just think of an action that we do, but I want us to think of a lifestyle that is to be lived in. Now, have you ever noticed this, that when people are passionate about something, it seems like no matter what they are doing or what they are talking about, it comes up? You know what I'm talking about? Those people that are just so passionate about something. Let me give you an example. I had a friend uh, growing up. uh, We lived in an apartment complex together. Loved this guy. He was one of my good friends growing up. But this dude, like, he epitomized the statement that ball is life. I mean, this dude just loved basketball. All he did was talk about basketball. His room was covered in, you know, posters. He had, I mean, he had, you remember when they put out, like, the NBA stat books, you know? You could go by the book. He had the book stacked up. I mean, he could spout out information. You never had to ask this dude what he wanted to do when we were hanging out playing as kids. You never had to ask him because without fail, there was a basketball, and that's all he wanted to do. Uh, He took the basketball with him to school. He took it with him. I mean, I'm pretty sure he slept with this basketball. That's just my guess. I mean, this dude, ball is life. Uh, Actually, today, to this day, he actually coaches basketball as well. I mean, so he still in some way epitomizes this idea of ball is life. But it was crazy because when you were around him, even if you weren't much of a basketball fan, it was just kind of, you couldn't pass up on like electric feeling, like you love basketball just because he loved basketball. You might not have ever dribbled a ball before, but you thought you could step on the court and be Jordan because of how much he talked about it and how great it was and how easy he made the game look. He loved it. And so it just came out in everything he did and everything he talked about. Let me give you another example. This is a more modern day example. And and so here are some toes, and I'm just going to step on them, okay? Um, Have you ever seen like those people that are just like enthralled with this Enneagram? Like, <laughs> and, and so, like, that's a shot at my wife as well. Uh, but, but she's not, listen, she's not as bad as what I'm talking about. Like, people that, like, that's all they know now. And they see everything. Let me give you an example. I had a, this happened this week. I had a conversation with an old friend, uh, a friend that I knew when I lived in South Carolina. And she called me, and she was trying to speak into a situation going on with a the couple there at their church. They were kind of having some hardship. And she was like, man, she wanted me to help her think through some things to say. And, and let me just tell you how the conversation started. This is no exaggeration. I still don't know what it means. Okay, but this is how the conversation started. I said, hey, you know, something like, hey, what's going on? So we, you know, I have pleasantries. Tell me what's going on. And, and this is what she said. She said, well, he's a four and she's a two and I'm trying to help them over here as a one. So I'm probably not the best. <laughs> and so here was my response to that conversation. Huh? I I had no idea what it meant to be a four. I still don't know what it means to be a four and a two and a one. And apparently I'm an eight, a a three. I see. I don't know. But but it. (laughs) 
<laughs> Threes are the best, right? So clearly there are some toes being stepped on. Uh, but it's like this, this idea of this Enneagram, like it just flows of everything that she did. And I'm not hating on the Enneagram. If it helps you, praise God, whatever. Some of us have the spirit. Some of us have the Enneagram, okay? Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Couldn't pass it up. But, but I noticed with this person of like, okay, she's all about this. Like it flows out in conversation. It's kind of this defining mark of, of, of her life. And the reason that I joke about these things, the reason I tell you this story is because for a believer, disciple making should be the thing that flows out of us. In every conversation that we're excited about what God is doing, excited how God is using us, that it, is, that it flows out as kind of the pinnacle of what we identify as, that it's disciple-making is life, right? And, and for a believer, that should be what, what flows out of us. Another great example of kind of what I'm talking about actually comes from the sermon that Pastor Lance preached a few weeks back. Do you remember when he mentioned the idea of the witness, right? And he said that the, the witness, says that, that we are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, that that word is not actually a verb, it's a noun, it's not telling us something that we are to do. It tells us who we are. That's kind of the same picture with a disciple maker, right? Because witness is part of the disciple making process. That disciple making isn't just something that we do. It's not, it's not just an action to be completed, but it's more, I want us to think of it in terms of a noun of it is the thing that must define our life. That we are a people that exist to make disciples, and in the text that we just read, specifically there in chapter 2, verse 8, we see lessons that teach us what a disciple-making life entails, what it looks like, and how it lasts, how it becomes more than just an action, but actually becomes our way of life. And so before we kind of unpack that a little bit, let me give you a little bit of background, because you know me, I mean, it's hard to jump into the middle of a book without knowing what's going on. So let me give you a little bit of background about the book of First Thessalonians. So Paul is writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica. And so First Thessalonians actually is one of Paul's earliest letters that he wrote. Uh, so earlier in date than some of the other epistles. And he is writing to these Christians, and he is rejoicing in what God has done. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. And he goes on and he tells them why he does this, why it is that him and Silas and Timothy, that they constantly remember them in their prayers and give thanks. And he says in verse 3, We recall in the presence of our God and Father, he recalls three things, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And there was no doubt that God had chosen them. Because their life was a manifestation of the gospel. And I love this passage of scripture, this whole section that we read. They present to us, the church in Thessalonica presents to us, in my opinion, one of the clearest examples of conversion in all of scripture. Because notice what it says there in verses 9 and 10. If this is not conversion, I don't know what is. Where it says, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. Listen, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God 
and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. That is the epitome of faith and repentance right there. They had faith in Jesus. They were waiting for him. Their faith was made known in the fact that they were waiting for Jesus to come back. They believed that he had died on the cross, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and they were waiting for his return. And one of the clearest pictures of repentance right there, they turned from idols to God. They were converted. And so Paul is giving thanks for them. And Paul, like he does so frequently, is writing to them because not only is he thankful for them, but he has, like he has with so many of the churches he writes to, an intimate connection with this church. Because it was Paul and Silas who planted the church in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. And let me read you a little bit of that. Uh, beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 17, it says, After they passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as usual, I love that about Paul, as usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and providing that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. It says, but the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started to riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, and I love this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Oh, how I long for that to be said of us. At this group of people who turn the world upside down. But Paul is writing to encourage them to continue on in the faith, to press on in sanctification, to live a life worthy of the calling to which they had been called, which from what we see they were doing and doing well, but he is spurring them on to continue on. But by the grace of God, as he is doing this in this letter to the church in Thessalonica, we have the privilege of seeing a powerful lesson and some insight into what it is to have a disciple-making life. And what I want to do this morning is just draw out for you three lessons that reveal to us what is present in a disciple-making life based on the testimony of Paul that we just read in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, but focusing specifically on chapter 2, verse 8. So here's the first lesson of a disciple-making life. A disciple-making life begins with a burden. A disciple-making life begins with a burden. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. It says there at the very beginning, we cared so much for you. And then look at the last statement in the verse. Because you had become dear to us. These two phrases in this verse of Scripture are so important when we consider disciple-making because Track with me here as we look at Paul, we see that he was not operating out of a sense of obligation, but at, rather out of a sense of burden for these people. That's, that's very important. When we consider Paul ministering to the churches in Thessalonica, he was not ministering to them 
out of a sense of obligation, but he was ministering to them from a deep burden within him. In other words, he genuinely loved and cared for them and longed to see them made right with Jesus. He had a real burden for these people, and this drove him to make disciples even in the midst of hard circumstances. His burden drove him to persevere in making disciples when persecution came, when opposition came. He said in the text that we just read that, hey, I just came from Philippi, and we were treated pretty outrageously there. Right? They tried to run us out of the city. They tried to beat us. There was a mob after us, and you would think that for most of us, that would discourage us from pressing on in the disciple-making process. But because Paul was not operating out of a sense of obligation, but a real burden for these people, he pressed on regardless of the circumstances around him. Now, I'm going to talk more about this in a minute, but this idea, this idea of a burden, but, but, but what I want you to hear is this. Like most things in ministry, and like most things in the Christian life, and I have been, I have been in the Christian life for 25 years, January uh, 8th marked 25 years since my baptism, and I have been in, in ministry for, for 12 years, and I can tell you that in both ministry and in the Christian life, when we are operating primarily out of a sense of obligation or merely completing a task, we will, without fail, burn out. We will, without fail, burn out because what we are actually doing when we are operating out of a sense of duty and obligation and we've just got to complete this task because Jesus told us to complete this task, but there's no burden, there's no affection for the people that we are ministering to, we are actually operating out of our own strength. Now, we know how that always ends, right? Because our strength is not eternal, it is not everlasting, and eventually it will give out and we will burn out. Right? We are trying to will ourselves to do something that we don't feel any sort of burden for. And I can give public testimony to that. There are people in this church that I have had to apologize to, even in the sense of disciple-making, because they wanted me to press into their lives. And, and it's not that I don't love them, but in my mind, I wasn't thinking about my love and my care for them. I was thinking of, all right, this is what a pastor is supposed to do. This is my job. I have to press into their lives. And without fail, I burn out. And I get tired, and I stop pressing in. And it doesn't mean I don't really love them in that case. It's just that I wasn't operating out of my love. I wasn't operating out of a burden to see people look more like Jesus. I was operating out of this sense of duty and responsibility. It just comes with the job. And I burn out. And see, part of the reason that I bring this up is because there is a, a genuine fear in me, and I have been praying for this diligently since January when we started this series. There is a genuine fear in me that that will be the response of a lot of people who have heard this series. All right, pastor said this is what we're focusing on this year. Pastor said that we've got to be about making disciples. He spent two months teaching about making disciples who show off Christ where life exists. We've got to grit our teeth, we've got to press into this, and we've got to get the job done. And my fear is that if we operate out of that mentality, this, this excitement for disciple-making will burn out real fast. Because we're not operating out of any real sense of burden for the people that we are seeking to make disciples of. 
See, my prayer is that we will not seek to be disciple-making disciples because we see it as, as a task to be completed or an obligation to, to, to get through, even though it is an obligation and it is a task. But my prayer is that we would be disciple-making disciples because we have a genuine burden to see people fall in love with Jesus and follow hard after him. But here's the beautiful thing about the church. You don't have to have the same burden as the person sitting next to you. See, I believe that God gives different burdens to different people, places different burdens in their hearts for different things, but all for the purpose of making disciples. Let me, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So when I was finishing up my sermon, and thank you, gentlemen, for responding to me late at night. So I was reviewing and finishing up my sermon, and I texted the other three pastors, and I just asked them a question. I said, all right, just because I was curious, I said, what is, in terms of your ministry as an individual, as a pastor, thinking about ministry, what is the thing that you are most burdened for? And what happened was what I thought would happen. All three of them had different responses. Pastor Mark responded, and, and I'm paraphrasing, he said it more beautifully even in his text, but he has a burden to see lost people come to know Jesus. That is his burden. I asked Pastor Lance, and Pastor Lance said that he has a burden in ministry for, for his wife and loving her well. And see, he doesn't know this yet. He's still new to the game. But what, what that's going to turn into is not just a burden for his wife and loving his spouse well, but God's going to use that. I'm calling it now, church, right? I'm calling it now. God's going to use that to also to, to, to shepherd other spouses and loving their spouse well because he has a burden for seeing healthy marriages, and he's starting at home. Amen. I asked Pastor John, and he has a burden for seeing personal holiness flourish and to see intimacy with God developed, not just in his own life, but I would argue in the lives of this church. And if you asked me this question, I would say that I am particularly burdened for two things. They didn't know they could give two things, but I'm writing the sermon, so I gave two things. But I would honestly say that I'm equally burdened for these two things, and some of you who know me know that this shouldn't surprise you. One of the things that I am very burdened for is seeing young couples flourish in their marriage. I have a burden for seeing them thrive in those early years of marriage because when you get the, the first years wrong, it's a lot harder later on. And so I want to see healthy young couples thrive. But my other burden is one that also shouldn't be a surprise to you. I have a burden to see men and women trained for ministry in their own context to be trained to be disciple makers from this context, to be trained in their context and sent back out into the same context. I have a burden for that. And here's what's so incredible about that. I don't think that it is our, we, we created these burdens within ourselves. I think that God has strategically given each of these pastors that you have affirmed different burdens because all of them are needed in the disciple making process. We need people to come to know Jesus before they can even be a disciple, Amen. And then as they come to know Jesus, we want to help them walk in intimacy with the Father. We want to see them have personal holiness. And then we want that to spread into their families and, and, and into their, their, their lives with their spouse and with their children. And then by God's grace, we hope that they even mature even more. We get to train them and send them out for more ministry. It's all part of the disciple-making process. And God has given each and every one of you, if you are in Christ, a unique burden. The question, though, is how do we turn that burden into feet and start walking it out in the path of disciple-making in the context of the church? 
You know, so often we hear sermons and people tell you, well, God has a burden for this, and so you have to have a burden for this, and God has a burden for this, and so you have to have a burden for this, and God, listen, you don't have to have a burden for everything. You're not God. God can have a burden for everything and hold it all in equal parts, but God gives each of us a burden and wants us to walk that out. The question is, what are you burdened for in terms of disciple making? What are you burdened for? You see, it all starts with a burden, and we have to start, first and foremost, by figuring out what it is that our hearts are burdened for. That's the beginning places, because so often Christians flip the process on their head, right? I I stole this from Dehati Lewis, but it's a really helpful thing. He says that most often when churches consider disciple-making, they start with the community and say, what does the community need? And then they say, okay, how does the church meet that need of the community? And then they go from the community to the church to the individual, and they say, now how does the individual plug into the church in order to meet that need of the community? And then they go to the burden and say, well, if that's everything that needs to happen, and we need to pray that God gives us a burden for this. That's the wrong way to go about disciple-making. The better way to go about disciple-making is to start with the burden that God has given you and see how you as an individual walk that out connected to and in the context of the local church and then see how the church collectively fleshes out all these burdens in a way that loves and serves the community the best way. It begins by understanding this burden that God has given us. And Paul had a burden for these people. He cared for them, and they were dear to him. His heart broke for them, and he wanted to see them walk in right fellowship with God, which is why he writes this letter praising God that they are doing that very thing, because it was a burden of his. Paul was operating out of a genuine care for these individuals that flowed from a God-given burden. So I have a couple questions for you for reflection. And you can write these down and take them home with you as we consider this idea of a disciple-making life beginning with a burden, a real burden for people. The question, the first question that I have is, what is it that God has burdened your heart with in terms of making disciples? What is it that God has burdened your heart with in terms of making disciples? Now, here's the follow-up question to that. How do you respond to that burden? How do you respond to that burden? In other words, what do you do with that burden? Because God doesn't give us a burden to just let it sit there. How do you respond to that burden? Here's the, the next question. How does that response flesh itself out in the context of the church? Meaning, you're identifying the burden that God has given you, you're figuring out how it is that you live out the reality of that burden, and then you're asking the question of how do I do that in the context of the local church? So for me, that's kind of simple, and I got one more question, but let me explain this. If I have a burden to see young couples flourish in their marriage, then I'm going to start by engaging young couples in the context of the church. Right? If that's a burden, if I have a burden to see people train for ministry, then I'm going to do that in the local church. So how does the burden that God has given me flesh itself out in the context of the local church? And then here is the last question. And then finally, how do we collectively, as the body of Christ, use these compilation of burdens to make disciples in the community? How do we collectively, as the body, Use these compilation of burdens to make disciples in the community. 
Again, Paul was operating out of a genuine care for these individuals that flowed from a God-given burden. And our burden is so important because as we begin to feel the weight of it, we will live out the second lesson very well. So here's the second lesson about a disciple-making life. So not only is a disciple-making life begin with a burden, but a disciple-making life requires your life. A disciple-making life requires your life. Let's keep reading there in verse, chapter 2, verse 8. He says, we cared so much for you, check this out, that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. We were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. A disciple-making life requires your life. You know, this is an amazing picture of what disciple-making requires because it is more, what we see with Paul is it is more than just teaching a foundations of the faith class. It is more than leading a community group. It is more than a once a week meeting over coffee. Faithful disciple making demands that we give our lives to those we are seeking to make disciples of. And that's exactly what Paul did. Notice what it says there in chapter one, verse, beginning uh, in the last sentence of verse five. So back to chapter 1, the last sentence of verse 5, he says this, You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord. You see, Paul did not just show up in Thessalonica and teach a sermon and leave. He didn't just show up and teach a couple church planting courses and leave. Paul showed up, he taught, and then he lived life in front of them so they could see how it looked played out. He says that he lived for their benefit. In his disciple-making, Paul modeled Philippians 2, 3, and 4 perfectly. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself, looking not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul modeled that out when he says, not only am I going to teach you, but for your benefit, for your good, I'm going to plant my life here, and I'm going to live life in front of you. So not only do you hear what it looks like to follow Jesus, but I'm going to show you what it looks like to follow Jesus. Do you realize what a powerful picture it said it is that it says that as they imitated him they imitated Jesus that Paul was walking so faithfully with Jesus and in his love for Jesus and in his own discipleship that they look at him live his life and see how Jesus lived his life he was modeling Christ in his sacrificial living in front of them. And this is incredible to me. So as they looked at Paul and they saw him live and they saw this sacrificial life of Paul live for their benefit, they understood Christ's love for them better and it made them fall more in love with, check this out, not Paul, but Jesus. It made them fall more in love with Jesus because Paul was imitating Jesus. This one who gave us the picture of what it looks like to sacrificially live for someone else. He is our sacrificial lamb. 
that Jesus Christ came into this world and lived a perfect life, again, modeling for us what faithfulness looks like and deserved no punishment and no wrath. And then we're here, right? And we deserve punishment and we deserve wrath because we don't live the perfect life. We deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. And yet Jesus Christ sacrificially died in our place. And he took the weight of our sin upon himself and was crucified and raised from the dead so that we could have life and fellowship with God. And Paul is mirroring that in his sacrificial love for them. So as they look at Paul, they see Jesus. Because that's the goal of disciple making, right? I don't want people to look at Michael and say, look how great he is as he follows Jesus. Because I mean, none of y'all would say that right now anyway. But that's not the goal. The goal is, man, when I look at him, I see Jesus and Jesus looks beautiful. Here's the incredible thing, though, and I love this. This is why I wanted to read the whole kind of scope of what's going on, because as they were imitating Paul, who was imitating Christ, you can see in this text how they actually began to look like Paul and therefore look like Christ. We see it play out in the text. Notice what Notice the work of God in the lives of those people that Paul gives thanks for at the beginning of the chapter. In chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, notice what he says. I, I, I counted them out, three things. He says, we always thank God for you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, this one, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So work produced by faith, love motiva- labor motivated by love, and endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of these things that the Thessalonians were living out, they had seen in Paul, and they were just imitating him as he imitated Christ. Work produced by faith. Look at, what, look at uh, Paul's example of this to them in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, for our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or any intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our our heart. Paul lived out a work produced by faith, and so it should be no surprise that those that he's discipled have a work produced by faith but a labor motivated by love. The very verse that we're looking at, chapter 2, verse 8. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Paul's labor was motivated by his love for them, and here they are laboring motivated by love. Isn't it amazing what discipleship does? But that's not all endurance inspired by hope in Jesus Christ. Paul modeled this to them. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. Why? Why did Paul endure? Because he had a hope in Jesus that was bigger than the circumstances of this life. And lo and behold, the people that he has discipled have an endurance inspired by hope in Jesus Christ. Look at what disciple making produces. As they imitated Paul, they were imitating Jesus. As as Paul imitated Christ and they imitated Paul, everyone was found to be faithful. As Paul lived among them, he modeled faithfulness to them. And again, as they imitated Paul, they were imitating Christ. And hear me, church. If we are going to be faithful in making disciples, it will require that you not just give an hour here and there. 
that we don't just have a conversation once a week for 45 minutes over a cup of coffee when we spend the first 40 of those minutes just catching up on life. But disciple making will happen when we when we commit to invite people into our lives to not only teach them, but also to show them what it looks like to follow Jesus. And this requires proximity of being near people. We want to teach people what it looks like to love Jesus and follow him in every season, season and circumstance. And so that means we have to show people what it looks like to love Jesus in every season and every circumstance. You know, one of the things that Aaliyah and I set out to do a while back was when we bought our house was we wanted to open it up to let people live with us. And by God's grace, we were able to have two people live with us right before they were getting married. So apparently our house is the place to come if you're about to get married. And some of you are like, I would like to get married. I don't have any prospects. Let me come live with you and we'll speed this process up. I don't think it works that way. We can give it a shot, okay? But one of the reasons that we did that is because Aliyah and I wanted these people to see us live our lives. And one of the hard things for us was we didn't try to struggle and have hardships in private. We wanted them to be able to see us have to reconcile and to see us fight and to see us make mistakes and to see us grow and see, see us seek to follow Jesus together as a couple. And it required that they be near us. I have the privilege of, of discipling a couple people, but one of the individuals that I'm, I'm discipling. I even checked with him this week to make sure that I wasn't just making something up. I just asked him the question. I said, do you think that I show you when I struggle? Do you think that you see the hard moments in my life and you get to kind of like watch me process through them? And he said, yes, absolutely, and was encouraged by it. And I was like, praise God that he's given me that grace because that's disciple making, right? We don't just show people this fluffy, everything's good, everything's great to follow Jesus. If we are going to make disciples, we have to let them see us struggle and make mistakes and reconcile and grow, and we've got to be honest about what it looks like to follow Jesus, but this requires time, it requires effort, it requires commitment, it requires sacrifice, it requires your life, but it is necessary if we want to see disciples flourish. We want to show them what it looks like to follow Jesus, and it might seem like a lot. I love the two individuals that lived in my house, but at times it could be a lot. Sometimes a man doesn't want to get fully dressed before he comes down out of his bedroom. Amen? <laughs> it required us buying different foods and buying more foods and doing extra things. It required a lot, but at the end of the day, it paled, into comparison. it paled in comparison to the sacrificial life lived by Jesus. Because no one that I've discipled, I've had to shed blood for quite yet. And none, no one that I've discipled, have, they've asked me to give my life for them. Though I think I would for some of them. But Jesus is the picture of sacrificial living. And it will never cost us as much as it cost him. But we want to look like him, amen? And we want people to look like him, which means we have to imitate him even in the hard things that Jesus did. And when we are willing to give of ourselves like Christ for the glory of God, God will do amazing things. I am convinced that when we are willing to give of ourselves like Christ for the glory of God, God will do amazing things. And this leads to the third and final lesson. A disciple-making life expects God-empowered growth. 
A disciple-making life expects God-empowered growth. Look, and this is, this is my favorite part about this whole text. Look at the results of God's work through Paul in the life of the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. It says this, as a result. A result of what? A result of Paul's faithful life lived in front of them. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Disciples, making disciples, making disciples, making disciples. This is such an incredible picture, and it goes on and on and on. I mean, think about that. Paul discipled the church in Thessalonica. And then the church in Thessalonica was used by God to disciple the churches in Macedonia. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the churches in Macedonia are used to teach the church in Corinth what it looks like to be sacrificial givers. And the church of Corinth has taught saints throughout generations of what to stay away from and what to run to. It is a pattern of disciple making disciples, making disciples, making disciples. And when we are faithful, we should expect that God will move in powerful ways. Because remember, it's not your job to change someone's heart. Only God can do that. But God will use your faithfulness through discipleship to create a God-glorifying legacy that will last far beyond you. And God will get all the glory. And that's what we want. But I genuinely believe, and I want to say this. Noah, my time is running to a close. I genuinely believe that so many of us are hesitant to open up our lives and to step into this arena of making disciples because we genuinely don't think God will do anything with it. Maybe maybe that's just me at times, but I think so many of us are hesitant to step into this arena of disciple making and opening our lives because we genuinely don't think God will do anything with it. But these chapters in Scripture remind us that God is still in the business of saving sinners and God is still in the business of using broken vessels to disciple and refine other disciples. He uses broken vessels to help other people fall more in love with Jesus, that God is still at work because the gospel is still powerful. And we have to believe that. I don't know if Paul struggled with that doubt. I don't, I don't know if he went into Thessalonica thinking, God's really not going to do anything through this, but I'm just going to do it anyway. I, I doubt that was the case. I believe that he went into believing, having seen God work and move in power, that if I am faithful to imitate Jesus in front of these people, that by God's grace they will imitate me, therefore imitate Christ, and the family will get a little bit bigger. And I am convinced that God is still at work. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be here doing this. I believe that God is still saving souls. I believe that God is still refining the immature. I believe that God is still raising up men and women who will be powerful for the kingdom. I believe that God is still making disciples, but he is using disciple makers. And my plea with you is to be faithful to make disciples because, again, the blood of Christ still saves And the blood of Christ still empowers, and the blood of Christ still changes things. And we believe 
that the gospel proclaimed still changes lives. And I believe that the gospel lived out in front of people will still make disciples. We believe that because we bank all that we have on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our hope. As I mentioned earlier, right? Because I'd be, I'd be half a preacher if I said all that and didn't share the gospel again with you, right? We believe that we were all by nature children of wrath. Some in this room are still by nature a child of wrath. But we were at one time all by nature children of wrath, meaning that we were born into sin. Adam was our representative head. He was our earthly father. And so when he fell, we all fell. And all of us come into this world tainted by this sin. Psalm 51, David says, In sin my mother conceived me. We are tainted with it. And then we walk it out as we grow. We are by nature at war with God in rebellion against the good things that he has given us. And God should rightly destroy us because of our sin. And yet, God is patient. He is kind. He is consistent through the ages. He keeps on getting better. Amen. And he was patient with us, meant to lead us to repentance. And God, at the right time, sent forth his son to live in this world and to die in our place. And as it says in in Romans, that in Jesus, we have a new, new head a new father, right? He is the better Adam. He is the second Adam. And through Christ comes life where through Adam comes death. And so because Christ lived the perfect life and died a death on the cross that we deserve to die and God raised him from the dead, when we come to him with faith and repentance, we can be seen as righteous because of what Christ has done. We believe that there are still people being seen as righteous for the first time because of what Christ has done. I believe that today someone will transfer from darkness to life. It might not be here. But God is still saving people, and the next step is to walk with them to help them imitate Jesus. And that's what we're all about. Again, that is the reason that God has left us here on this earth, to make disciples, to show off Christ where life exists. So my prayer for us is that we would have lives, not moments, not a few actions, but lives that are marked by disciple-making.